Is your show Stanford? Welcome to the Henry George Program. I'm Mark Molino, and I'm joined today by co-host Jacob Schwartz Lucas. This is a program dedicated to finding practical answers to the housing crisis, economic volatility, inequality, and environmental degradation here in the Bay Area and beyond. We compare and contrast the ideas of the 18th, 1800s, was it 19th century, but 1800s. Uh, century economist Henry George, with that of both historical and contemporary thinkers, also address our issues ranging from artificial intelligence, automation, and universal basic income. To city planning and land value tax, a concept popularized by George. Today, it is a free-form roundtable just between Jake and I. We started off with a, uh, with a topic that did not catch on. Uh, I said, let's start off by talking about Esperanto for a moment. That lasted for all of 20 seconds. Uh, then we started talking about fairness, and that took us through most of the rest of the hour. This case issue. I guess well, one thing I, I kind of recently got into, not really too much, is uh, or just I looked into the idea of Esperanto. And it's kind of interesting how there is like kind of Esperanto communities that still persist, and they have a similar idealism that reminds me of the Georgist community in, in similar ways. Uh, people primarily really kind of fundamentally believe in like, you know, ideal, idealism over like the shared humanity of everybody. And they kind of still believe that in the long run, you know, this could still be useful in, in helping people get together and, and make good outcomes for everybody. And between the community, if you see someone who speaks Esperanto or is, cares about it, you kind of know, oh, this person cares about people and they're idealistic. And it's actually a pretty nice community for that sense. Um, and they want to always, you know, make more inroads. Uh, and the question is, you know, is it really, can it be for everybody or is there something that kind of... They just need to max out the idealists first. <laughs> and I guess that's another question about like the future of of Georgism as another you know thing that was more popular in the 19th century uh, and still persists today among a ever more select group. Uh, you know, what are the inroads to finding more and more audiences for Georgism? But I guess the question is, you know, who are the people that you really get inroads with? I think you know a lot of audiences are you get socialists who care about implementation details. You get libertarians who actually care about people. You know, you get people who are just, you know, love the free market and want to make it work better. You want people who want a effective way to end poverty that seems like it has some chance of, of working. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of, I, I guess, different parts of of different parts of the political spectrum. I, I don't know if those are the ones you, you try to target or pick off. I notice a lot with the people who want in poverty or perhaps are kind of left-wing, maybe into environmental issues, that they tend, not always, but there there is a group that just sort of has this temperament of being really against solutions that are kind of seen as silver bullets or that solve lots of other um, issues. And if you imply that there may be some issues that have just really strong spillover effects into many other problems um they'll they'll tend to look at you suspiciously and uh i think that's a bad thing but for me that was one of the most attractive things about georgism because i said okay i only have so much time you know so many resources and how do i use those most efficiently to have you know some sort of benefit to society what's the biggest bang for my buck so the 
just the fact that it was one thing that had implications for lots of things and to a, to a large magnitude, I, I thought was one of the most attractive aspects for, for me as an individual. But I don't think that that's everyone's temperament. I, I think that can repulse a lot of people too. I mean, a lot of people are, you know, it's saying, oh, it's, it's purported to be a panacea, <laughs> you know, and that's, people make fun of it for that. And I'd say there, I mean, Anyone who claims anything is a panacea, yeah, nothing is a panacea. You know, the way people live and interact, there are so many complicated ways. And and I, I think, yeah, there's it's it seems also, what are the chances that in this big, messy, complicated world, there is a silver bullet out there that will make a lot of things a lot better? And I'd say, yeah, you should be skeptical. If people say, I have, you know, one simple trick to, to solving so many things in the world— it, odds are that's going to be wrong. If there's one thing that says, like, why why would a land value tax be more possible to be a silver bolt than other things? I'd say the fact it's so boring, I think, makes it, you know, attractive. Because if something sounds like the one easy cure and it's also really sexy, it's like, well, that clearly can't be true. It, but if it's a really fundamentally theoretically sound way to make a lot of things better and it's so boring that people stop listening after 15 seconds that's actually a pretty good way to say oh this makes sense why this hasn't cut on it's really boring and it makes a lot of people upset you look at howard jarvis is you know had a very attractive sexy thing that you know made californians say hey let's let's you know completely abandon any sort of you know tax on the change of, of value of land and people said oh great we love this <laughs> but uh you know it- I, I tend to notice that a lot of uh people with sort of an engineering mindset like land value tax right because if you think about it from the perspective of hey you know I, i'm building a car i want it to go as fast as possible with the least fuel so you start looking in the system you start looking for the bottlenecks what are the things that um, if tweaked would result in go, going the fastest with the least fuel, right? So you find the bottlenecks first and you correct those things that are going to result in a, you know, a greater I- increase in speed per, per fuel and you solve those first and then you move on to the, to the smaller bottlenecks that if those things are tweaked will in- increase the, the speed and, and, and the fuel efficiency. Um, and, and so I don't think it's so much that uh, Georgism is saying that LVT will fix everything. There are some people who are so enthusiastic about it that they, they would say that. They would say it would, it would change uh, human nature. I, I think that's the problem with Marxism, right, is that Marxism uh, claims like that this social system will change human nature whereas i think with georgism the point is that it's just accounting for human nature well as marxism in in itself really is not a system marx himself said i don't like people who have utopias he didn't like henry george for that very reason it's like another person who has a, an idea he he was more of a person who said if you don't have these effects in the end. You have, a, a, you know, you have a, a system that works. If you don't have people being dehumanized and used as commodities, you have a system that works. How do you get there? Well, that's for you to figure out. And 
I'd say he's not even wrong. You know, I mean, I'd say absolutely. If you get people that no one is dehumanized, that's great. Uh, and then you have all these implementation versions of it that don't really seem to be very effective at doing that. But yeah, I mean, but it's, surely his philosophy implies certain things about what you ought to do and what you ought not to do, right? Otherwise, it would just be, you know, somebody somebody writing down, well, I think good outcomes would be a good thing, but I don't care how we get there. And sure, that's not what he was saying. He's saying, let's get rid of private property. I mean, that's the first plank of the Communist Manifesto. I think the difference is he says it's less about let's us do this. It's more saying... You know, the idea of the spirit, as Hegel outlines, means this is inevitable and it will happen. And right. and, and there really isn't a whole lot of room. And I think he condemns he, the idea of... He went with the Tao, you know, and <laughs> he condemns the, the proletariat idea of, will take over. Yeah, he condemns the idea of ideas just in general. Idealism, the idea that ideas matter, are exactly the opposite. I mean, he says ideas are not important. What only matters are forces being done by people with different material uh, outputs. And ideas are only ways that you explain material ideas. There is no truth in ideas. Um, and that's very much different than the than the idealism of of Georgism says ideas are real, morality is real, there is right and wrong, and if we really focus on the right ideas, we can make a better world for ourselves. Yeah, I guess I tend to be more of an idealist, not in the sense that uh, well, in two ways, you know, I, I believe in progress and trying to <laughs> make things better, but also in in terms of you know. Uh, what what's driving reality? Is it ideas or is it you know? And you could say money. Um, what what's a more powerful force in history? Well, I think definitely ideas are are, are more powerful uh, than than money is. So here's here's an interesting thing that came up in the last uh, week or so. Uh, have you heard of the Kellogg Bryant Act uh, Pact? Excuse me, the Kellogg Bryant Pact. It came in 1929. I want to say uh, it was it was announced. Uh, and it was a pact that everyone in the world could go on to. It was it was first an idea of like, hey, let's say France and the U.S. have a pact to say, hey, let's let's never have a war. And they said, how about every country says let's not have a war? And they basically had every country signed on to it. Almost every country, sixty three countries by thirty four, every major power at that time. Um, and people said, oh, well, this clearly didn't work. <laughs> we had a lot of wars ever since that. But a lot of people, and there's a uh, there's a, a new book, really about the history of of this, saying there is a lot of reasons you could say this has changed the way we treat wars. Before the Kellogg Bryan Act, the idea was if you have a war for any reason, if it's self defense, if you're provoked, or if you have any kind of rationale, you were able to keep the spoils. It is considered a right version of war. That the idea of war is, what if it happens, if you win, you get the spoils. Afterwards, it was said that well, there are various reasons you can make ideas of why war can mean self-defense. But if war happens, you it it, it you all can, is fair in love and war. Yeah, I mean, war is an anomaly. Afterwards, we say war is a crime. The 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 uh, the trials at Nuremberg were basically kind of said, what is the reason we can say that we can execute these Nazis? It is because they did something very wrong that all people agree you can't have wars of conquest. And now every person in the world would say you can't have wars of conquest. 
And that is very different than it was. Like, look at the Mexican War, for example. The Mexican Wars, there's a bunch of stuff going on in Texas and so on. The U.S. goes in, say, hey, we had a good reason, and get, we get to keep half <laughs> half the Western United States now as ours for very dubious reasons. And at that point, that was the idea of war. If you do war, you get a little bit of spoils for it. And now, if you are doing any kind of police action actions being sun is like, you know, uh, preemptive self-defense, they aren't wars of conquest. And they said this isn't a small idea that really has changed the way that the world has has looked at war and has really made us more peaceful. And it was it has changed our culture and ideas of what war is. And people would say they're more of if you are a real politic, you'd say, well, that doesn't matter. It only matters are real forces going against each other. You know, forces. I wonder if this is one of the reasons Steven Pinker gives for why we're becoming m- more peaceful as a planet. You know, he he has these. Uh, I haven't heard him speak about this in particular. Well, what does he say? Well, uh, well, I think his main thesis, if and I haven't read his books, but um, I think his main thesis is that we are becoming more peaceful as a planet, and that is counterintuitive to a lot of people because you know we we see all the terrorist activities happening and um you know wars are very uh visible i mean we have uh videos and you know WikiLeaks and all this stuff but but he's saying you know, statistically speaking we're seeing a decrease in violence so i just thought maybe that was one of the reasons given but since you don't know then maybe yeah something to look up later yeah i, I think there's there's well, what do you think i think there's two kind of uh, counterbalancing forces when you talk about just idealism in how you live your life. When you have more wealth, you have more to lose, and every person kind of feels like, well, they're not going to risk their lives over some small piece of idealism when they have like an entire, like, you know, well, well furnished life to protect. And the other side says, this is something I think Khrushchev said back in, uh, you know, 1955 or so. I was reading a book about Khrushchev. Uh, written at the time, um, and he says, you know, when people learn to read and write and have enough to eat and stop being hungry all the time, they start thinking about democracy. And I think there's a, I, I, I think that when you have people who just have time to think, they will start thinking about right and wrong. I think it's a natural part of the human character that when you aren't... That's true, but uh, you know, for for the longest time, when when I was younger, I always kind of thought, uh, you know, because you 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 hear that you know that famous quote that she never really said from Marie Antoinette says, uh, "Let them eat cake," you know. So I think a lot of people's conception of like the French Revolution, for instance, was that okay, people are starving, so they're angry, they're irritable, um, so now they've been driven to violence out of uh, desperation. Right. But I think a narrative that makes a lot more sense is that people get angry and violent when there is some sort of hindrance to their ascension and in, in, in the social hierarchy. So uh, that would kind of run counter to the idea that, oh, yeah, once you have food and time to think, you get less violent. It may just make you feel more entitled. Yeah. I mean, I think you talk about material care, you talk about status. I mean, I think if you talk about what really drives people in politics now, a lot is 
status. <laughs> and I don't know how much you could really say that Henry George and his ideas have to say about the resentment of, of culture and status. I don't think a whole lot because he's kind of saying what really matters are the people you really eradicate poverty. That's, you know, step one. And the f- bad feelings people feel when they are impoverished as far as attention goes. I don't think anyone would really say there should be an attention value tax being put on people who are celebrities or something. I mean, absolutely not. It's It would be very hard to do, but you still have a lot of people who feel they're being ignored and left behind. And that's making a lot of people unhappy, too. I don't know what you can really say about it, but it is one of the things going on. But, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people who aren't impoverished in any real way, but still feel really unhappy. Is there anything you really say about that, or is it just kind of outside the scope? Of... Uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, happiness is correlated to a large degree with, um, you know, m- material well-being, but only up to a certain point. I think they say after, you know, if you're a single person, after about $50,000, you know, depending on where you're renting, all these other factors, but um, everything being equal for for the average American, uh, after about $50,000, there's really high uh, diminishing marginal return for for making uh, more money. And I think at some point what starts to happen is that uh, people just kind of, um, you know, they're on whatever genetically predetermined hedonic treadmill they're on and they can do things to augment their happiness, like, I don't know, meditation or uh you know, figuring out whatever's wrong with their brain, going to a psychologist or something like that. But, uh, you know, just pouring more material items um, and, and, and money into the problem doesn't tend to have uh, a benefit. And um, I think one thing that does make people unhappy is when they feel something's unfair. If they feel that they are being persecuted because of an unfair system that's putting them down. And a lot of people have really messed up ideas about what's unfair. They say, hey, look at that, you know, illegal out there and they're, you know, they shouldn't be getting the same. And they have ideas of like the baseline of what gives a valid reason for what is fair and unfair. And if they feel that a person who has different colored skin should have an advantage and it's unfair when other people don't, I think you have to go down and say, well, we we have in a society a you know kind of different shared ideas of what is fair, what is unfair. We have basically all agreed, some people catching up, that it is unfair when people of different races are treated differently. And that is something very different than we felt 200 years ago. But that is something we kind of now realize all people are people and need to be treated in a fair system. And... I think the same thing too when it goes when people feel that their status is impugned for all these unfair policies, maybe we just have a lot more frank ideas about what fair is. Yeah, well, uh, I think fairness is is pretty relative, right? Like uh, the what the Stanford prison experiment. When you are arbitrarily assigned as a guard to prisoners, uh, you feel that it is fair that um, you have domain over everything and that other people should grovel. Uh, so so you can get pretty angry and indignant when um, prisoners don't immediately capitulate to you. And I think that's very similar to what you said about 
people say, you know, thinking, oh, well, they're brown, therefore they don't deserve uh, what I have. And and I think that kind of goes along with what I was saying before about uh, people getting violent when they see something impeding their social ascension rather than having to do with real objective differences in, uh, you know, in, in wealth. Well, I, I, there's kind of an idea of people say, where does resentment come from in the right? And people say it still goes to an idea of fairness. And they say uh, this is some some kind of book. Um, I, what what came out of uh, saying? Let's imagine there's a hill and people feel their entire life they're waiting in line to reach the American dream, and then suddenly they see all these you know people cut in line in front of them, and they see all these you know slackers and you know welfare queens and illegal immigrants. It's like all these people who cut in line in front of them, and they're still working hard. And they're putting they're further back in line, and there's and that is how a lot of people say what is wrong with their life. And there's a lot of assumptions going into that. The assumptions are that someone from a, you know, an immigrant deserves less than they get and they, you know, should automatically be further back in the line. Um, and I guess the idea is, one, is the, is the, uh, is the uh, American dream, is it, a, is it a material thing or is it just about kind of everyone has a chance to to make it themselves what is also unsaid there is the people who are basically way ahead of them in line you know you talk about someone like who just has the aristocracy like the literal aristocracy of england owns a lot of land in like silicon valley and is you know uh, there's a 26 year old the duke of westminster worth 13 billion dollars do they not feel bad about that guy being in the front of the line? It feels like they really should if this is their, their main objection, is that this line is unfair. Why should the Duke of Westminster be the ultimate cutter and just take up so much and make everyone's life slightly worse in a way like that, just basically making private tax and everybody? And well, as it, long as these proverbial dukes are saying, well, you can be just like me, you can be just like me, uh, I, 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 you know, it, the, your, your real impediment is all of the immigrants. Your real impediment is all of these people who, they won't say in truth, are the downtrodden. Then I think the, the point is if you can divide these two very downtrodden and relatively more down, uh, relatively downtrodden groups against each other, then you don't have to worry about either of them. It's it's just very weird that so many people are very, very primed to say, I object to unfairness as long as I can punch down <laughs> at all these people who really have a worse life than me trying to move ahead. But the people who really have had a golden spoon ever since – some people say silver spoon. I say golden. People who have a silver spoon in their mouth since the day they're born and – are extracting so much of my sweat for no good reason i'll give them a pass it's very very odd and like say like well, maybe it's just about being an easier target too right like the people with born with a as you said a golden spoon in yeah. their mouth probably have the ability to uh block these kind of punches whereas if you're frustrated it, it's much easier to just punch down well, you look at the Annabellum yeah, South. You have yeah. the poor whites. They never say, "Hey, look at these slave owners." You know, look at these big plantations, and they're keeping me down. They just have resentment against the blacks, 
because they feel like it's the only way they can get their status higher. And I guess they felt that really attacking the big landowners of the of of, of these estates is just not it's unlikely to make them feel better about themselves because it's unlikely to work. Is that the idea? It's hard to say. Uh, maybe in the antebellum South, uh, those landowners control the narrative, right? Uh, you know, I assume they probably owned a lot of newspapers. Um, well, I mean, yeah. It's, 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 are, you, are you saying it's a Joe the Plumber thing? You know, they really say like one day they'll they'll just be able to stop being a yeoman and start owning 50 slaves of their own and they'll really have have it made and that's that's the american dream circa the south in 1850 and i don't know it's and i guess there's an assumption saying hey slavery is good and i guess you look around the bay area or something uh, i mean the place with the kind of wildest real estate saying hey look at this you know the whole thing of these people who have these great you know multi-million dollar homes just you know, kind of due to right place, right time, a lot of luck. Well, you could be there one day yourself. You know, that's the American dream is about having your land appreciate. <laughs> that's the American dream, and not really questioning the assumption, saying this is a valid way to create millions of dollars of wealth is owning scarce resources and having it uh, accrue in value. No one really questions that assumption, and it is, I think, part of the American dream. circa 2017 is. Owning valuable land and having it, you know, appreciate—that's part of the American dream. Much as owning slaves is part of the American dream 200 years ago. It's just something we don't question, right? Right. And and you know, it came to a breaking point in Europe where you had a mass exodus of people who, you know, weren't willing to live under a system where there was landlordism, but it was highly concentrated. And so, what do we have in the United States? We still have landlordism, but in order to support that uh, that pyramid, um, it, we've just made the base larger so that the you know a middle class person can own land and enjoy some of the unearned benefits that come along with you know just a passive increase in in, in the value of their property. Um, but in allowing them to do this, you've actually helped support um, the more egregious forms of, of landlordism and, you know, uh, of rentiers like Donald Trump or, you know, or others who they don't just own their own home. You know, they own prime real estate in every city around the world. And if you say, well, let's tax that, then immediately you're going to have all of the homeowners who just own their single family home out with pitchforks. And and therein lies the problem is that they've got the people that they're keeping down fighting on their side just by giving them enough crumbs to buy them off. Yeah, I, I would like to uh, replace uh, Donald Trump, I think, with the Duke of Westminster in all places. Because Donald Trump, for his scummy and, you know, he has actually— he has class, right? Well, I mean, he's, al- <laughs> he's always been working to, to build his image out there. You know, he has been working like a dog to get his face out there. And he has become a celebrity, and that's where his real wealth comes from, a lot of things. Uh, I mean, he hasn't really made that much. They say if, if he's put the money— uh, that he had in the mid seventies into just basically Manhattan and bought up real estate and said, let it you know just accrue passively. He would have ended up with more money than he did in the end, but he wouldn't have become famous and he wouldn't become president. But he would have become richer. 
Um, as opposed to the Duke of Westminster, is a 26-year-old with $13 billion of real estate in some of the prime urban <laughs> urban centers around the world. That's that's someone who has done a lot less work to get to a much uh, a much better target, I guess. Um, but yeah, I think it's just talking about you know how landlords are part of a good system. I'm reminded of uh, Sir Charles Trevelyane, one of the great apologists of of the Irish landlords of the 19th century. Uh, this is just something on his uh, Wikipedia page. He believed it was not the government's responsibility to provide supplies of food or increase land productivity, but the landlords. The Times agreed with Trevelyan, faulting the gentry for not instructing the proprietors to improve their estates and not planting crops other than potato. In his letter to Lord Monteagle, Trevelyan identified the gentry with a defective part of the national character and chastised them for expecting the government to fix everything, as if they have themselves no part to perform in this great crisis. By blaming the famine on the gentry, Trevelyan justified the actions or inaction of the British government. So <laughs> many, many people starved to death in Ireland and suffered greatly because of the potato crisis. And he's saying it's not the government's job, it's the landlord's job, because they're basically the person who has the role to take care of all these people. He still chastised them, but he still says, you know, the fact that the landlord has a very inherent part of these people's lives, they have a certain obligation to basically care for them and keep them alive. And I guess historically that has been the role of the great aristocracy is saying, well, you know, you get a lot of great wealth, but you have a lot of responsibility to take care of people. And this is kind of the tail end. Now we just say, well, you have a lot of wealth and you have no responsibility. And that's where we get now. The government has all the responsibility to take care of the people, but the landlords still have the ability to make great, you know, tremendous profits from all the people with no real accountability for their actions. Right. And if you're going to be rich in the in the feudal era and, and be a landlord, you at least had to um, private armies behave in a certain way. You know, you had to have there at least had to be an air of decency about you and fair mindedness. Um, whereas. Which Obviously, is, if you're Donald Trump, you don't have to have any decency at all. And if other people aren't like you, and you know, it, it's because there's, you know, you're superior for totally irrational reasons. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's and the idea of saying, oh, everybody can't be, you know, a, a well esteemed, well put out person. You could only have a few good people, and then you have the great masses. And that is what egalitarianism has said. This is something we reject, and we absolutely have rejected saying that you know only the arist aristocracy deserves to vote. We you know say that only they deserve not to starve, but we still say you know you can you can still be elevated to higher levels of wealth. And if you look at billionaires, you can find nary a billionaire out there who doesn't own a large amount of urban real estate these days. It's it's kind of crazy to go down to go down the list of billionaires out there. They're very quiet. There's a very quiet, quiet tendency to say, hey, where do you put your money? You buy up prime real estate. They know that we're living in an urbanist age where it's an excellent investment. And essentially down the board, if you, a lot of people make their money in an old-fashioned way, but it's a good way to make a multiplier once you start getting a couple, you know, once you start making a couple hundred millions, then you can start making real money <laughs> that way. And and I think that's what leads to a lot of confusion about what's earned and what isn't is because you have these entrepreneurs who start out doing something really productive and perhaps even good for society uh, separate from their returns. But then instead of parlaying that into 
more more productive activities that are going to benefit humanity, they say, okay, I've won. Now, how do I have a defensive strategy of uh, keeping my money and getting unearned wealth on top of that just because I already have the capital? How do I live off the interest and just, you know, all the all the gifts and favors that are given to me because I'm one of the elite now? It's like the... Um, um, and and they own, that's how they do it. They, they buy urban land. It's like the uh, bonus round in Mario. You you finish the level and then you suddenly go around to where there's all these gold coins everywhere and you get them all for free. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's... People, should they like small businessmen? They should. You know, it's very good to have people out there, you know, trying to start up new ideas and actually generate good, productive services and goods for other people. That's great. But is it really good that the next step beyond version one is you make a small business, you help people, is then you acquire others, create a monopoly, and then start buying up you know, basically completely passive things that only the super wealthy can make to make super, super wealth. Yeah, that's something that no one says is really a very good thing for anybody. But we so we I have most people. I think most people get that this this game is totally unfair. And it's why I think there's a there's a connection between this and what I've seen a lot of people my age doing um, who you know, want to become entrepreneurs. They say, so, you know, so why are you starting this company? Uh, well, you know, so that, so that I can uh, retire and not have to work anymore. And that's an, that's an odd answer. I think to myself, well, why would you never want to work anymore? Wouldn't you want to do what it is that you like doing and, and getting paid and, and using those funds to sort of magnify, you know, whatever effect you want to have on the world is great. But the idea is that, you're working really hard now so that you can finally drop out of well, everything and get is, away from everyone in this nastiness. There's that, that's bizarre yeah. to me. Sorry. Yeah, there's certainly a zero-sum thinking there, which is just saying that for all people to sit down and relax, there's only so much that can happen in the world. And, you know, it's kind of weird that if you talk about the the gains of all the people brought out of poverty— you know, goods are cheaper than ever. Food is cheaper than ever. People are brought out of extreme poverty at rates that were th- thought unthinkable before. But the idea that people, if they want to, can just kind of relax and not work so much and say, oh, well, that's that if you're extremely wealthy, you can do that. But everyone else can't. It's saying like saying people can drop out, you know, one, it's a weird idea that society can't function without them. I think it it seems like it, it definitely could. The amount of autom- you know automatic work being done is only getting better and better. And second is, you know, I think yeah, rightly so. Yeah, that shouldn't be considered the dream of life <laughs> is to have a life where you're basically made to kind of not exist and just kind of you know to have some like small relaxation somewhere. It's like everyone should get that for free. That's you know what life yeah, is yeah. is finding I, out. I mean, rather than like uh, people working jobs they hate for their whole life. Just, just so at retirement, they can then, uh, you know, waste away supposedly happy, is is very strange. Why well, I, I would much rather take all of that rest time that usually comes after people are retired and just kind of evenly distribute it throughout somebody's career, so that yeah, we always have adequate time to relax, and there is a much greater benefit to working harder all the t- all the time, but. Uh, yeah, I tend to think people do the best work when they're 
fully charged and happy <laughs> and you know they're 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 thing where they can solve problems better i mean it's true if you look at any uh, even just iq tests when people are stressed and don't have uh enough sleep um they, they don't perform as well so so why would you if, if if you got the opportunity to structure your society in a way that makes your all the workers the most productive you know why, why would you have people, um, you know, miserable until they're 65 and, and then once they're allowed to rest, suddenly they're not contributing anymore? Yeah, the the, uh, the idea of Cary Grant in the George Cukor movie, Holiday, his philosophy is retire young and work old. And that was his thing. He was going to basically really explore his life while he's young. And yeah, he'll he'll find something he enjoys and work till he's old. And I mean that's actually a much more sensible thing that that people when people have young, exciting, creative energy, you should really be using that instead of sticking them in some boring job that is just basically squeezing their days away, you know, not showing any creativity, and you know for what? So they can yeah, so they can do nothing when they're sixty. That's crazy. Absolutely. And I think, you know, part of the reason for that, I think, you know, we usually talk about ageism as flowing in one direction, right? There's, say, the the uh, tech company run by young people, and they don't let any old people in because old people, on average, are not as good with computers, say. Um, you know, the, the, there's that kind of ageism, right? But I think it really flows in two directions. Um, what you often have is you know, a corporate structure where it's 70-year-olds and, and up who are you know, running things. And then you'll have young people who serve the role of, of lackeys. Um, but th- what they're doing, and I think the, the ways in which they're being directed are not really about being productive. They're about kind of bolstering the the power and and the rent that's flowing to the older people in, in, in this corporate structure. So, uh, <laughs> you know, people are working hard when they're younger, um, but the work they're doing isn't necessarily even contributing to something uh, more productive. So it's, you know, there, there's a, you know, greater waste even on that front. And what, what are the reasons why they can't have their holiday and actually really explore their creative energies while they're young. I mean, for most people, their biggest single expense is the rent they have to pay to live in any of like the the, the cities of right. the world, and and that is really the main reason people work. I mean, food costs, healthcare costs, but right. I mean, but yeah, rent is really the big cost that keeps people from saying that's why I have to work. Yeah, and, and usually older people, if if they've um, been somewhat prudent, uh, will will own property. Maybe they'll have their mortgage paid off, but um, you know, young people are not even on that ladder yet. So that's, they're just that's they're getting just their initial income, and it's all being creamed off the top. 
That's the new American dream is while you're young, you struggle to make your way to get your first mortgage. Then you get your first mortgage and you're surviving. Then the second part of the American dream is you get more money to get investment properties. Then you're squeezing the new young people and the new poor right. people to get even more money so you can finally really relax when you're older. So it's just this big treadmill of saying, even as we get better and better, we still are chasing over these scarce things and, and pushing everyone else down. And we never think to think about it. And, and people are so afraid of being abused that they have to become the abuser in order to not be abused themselves because it is a zero-sum game. So, so what do you do within that system that, that hurts everyone? Well, you know, either, either get, you know, eat or be eaten. And I don't think that's the fault of any of these individuals but it is certainly a fault of this system. And I guess you could say it's a fault of individuals that don't care to look at that in a systemic sense and think to themselves, what, what could we do differently here? I would like to be part of a larger group um, fighting for a more just system. Yeah, and there's really very little evil here. There's very few people who are saying we're, we're we're the puppet masters pulling the strings. It's just a system that people just naturally fall into without thinking, and you get a lot of bad consequences just when you don't spend a few minutes realizing, hey, what are we doing here? <laughs> what are we doing here? And it's it's kind of crazy. You get more people who believe there's a massive conspiracy that NASA is covering flat Earth than people can say, hey, you know, look, let's look at what we're actually getting out of our system of private tenure and property of of land and scarce resources. And it is something which is much more boring than imagining there's some big conspiracy of evil people. Well, I think, you know, it is sometimes hard to see patterns if they haven't been introduced to you, right? Like uh, a lot of people are complaining about the patriarchy, right? So women being oppressed, um, the people in the LGBT community being oppressed, and it's all kind of, there's kind of this like resentment of old white men. It's saying it's uh, it's a character flaw and not kind of a, a, a pattern that unconsciously creates a lot of bad consequences, but without a lot right. of real evil attached. Yeah, I, I think one of the biggest issues that kind of bolsters the, the relative power of, of white males over these other groups, um, I guess if we're using the LGBT community type speak, um, you know, especially like cis, cis white males, it's, it's not so much that like these cis white males walk around thinking about how they want to like actively hurt people that are, you know, different than them. But it's, it's more that, uh, you know, if, if you're the head of the household, uh, your son or daughter doesn't have the same sexual preferences as you doesn't want to do all the things that you did, then you have enormous leverage over them. And you can, you can deny them. You can literally deny them shelter. You can deny to pay their uh, medical bills and, and bills for their you know, tuition. And so, you know, if that dynamic didn't exist where, you know, you literally had to depend on white males for your job and for, you know, for a place to, to rent, then nobody would give a crap if you, you know, <laughs> if you were gay or or, or whatever. And so, you know, I, I, when, when I hear about those issues, I, I don't want to um, downplay the, the, the genuine pain and suffering those people are experiencing. But I think to some degree, it's a misdiagnosis of what's actually causing it. 
I, I don't really believe that it's just like there's, yeah, like you said, there's this conspiracy and that white males are just evil. Secret club. I mean, I'm of the sure there's some of that going on, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, there isn't really, yeah, it doesn't need to be a concerted effort, but just every time you you see something and you say, hey, look at this unfairness, is it making my life better? Then I'm okay with it. Like if you talk about, like, let's say, Immigrants are coming, and let's just say, like, it's a tech worker saying, hey, they're restricting visas for tech workers. And if your first thought is, hmm, that's, this helps give me job you know, security. I like this. And you have to say to yourself, if you are saying that it, a clearly unfair policy is something you support only because it materially helps you, that just is – that is really kind of the seed of all sorts of problems. If you say, I'm fine with this unfairness – if I can see a benefit for myself, is just it's the steps to an amoral world in which we can never really get out of these issues. If you say, you know, it's going to be harder at work if, if more women are competing for my job, there's this kind of desperation of zero sum thinking that says, I'm fine with keep, or, or, I'm fine with turning a blind eye to keeping people down as long as I can make a justification that it helps me out in some sense. And you know, I mean, I think that is really the big evil is the willingness of people to go along and turn a blind eye to unfairness when they can make a rationalization that makes them better. If you are a, a Prop 13 homeowner and say, you know, Prop 13 isn't right, but, you know, I, I really can't say that I'm not helped. I got to support it. That is that is you can call that evil. You can call it not evil, but it's really the problem. That was our conversation about about fairness and, I guess, the evil of just looking on. Uh, and I guess to fill out the time, this is just me uh, speaking at the Policy Council a few days ago on the same topic, more or less. I think I was influenced by that conversation we had just the other week. Hi there. Uh, my name is Mark Molyneux. I graduated from Stanford a few years ago. So if one is uh, to cut a cake between two people, there's a fair way you can do this. One person cuts a cake in half, the other person decides which half they want. Uh, this is gonna be fair for, the f for both people. They at least agree they won't want to trade. Let's say a different situation. Let's say one person is able to cut the cake and they get to choose what they take. They're gonna take it all. They're gonna take the entire cake, because they, they can. There's a name for this. This is local control. Late this summer, a letter was written by Mayor Scharf to Kevin DeLeon of the State Senate urging them to, re uh, to reject SB 35, which would streamline housing approvals if a city does not keep up with the shared housing needs obligations. Uh, Mayor Scharf objected to SB 35, saying it's contrary to the principles of local democracy and public engagement. Mayor Scharf said that SB 35 will violate the rights of Palo Alto citizens. Uh, a very useful concept has been formulated by Cass Sunstein. It's called the naked preference. He defines it as when you d distribute resources or opportunities to one group rather than to another solely on the grounds of raw political power instead of any sort of fairness or rights. This is what is happening here. It's, it's a naked preference. Palo Alto and its residents, they have the land. They have the ability to have the land forever due to the protections of Prop 13. Prop 13 benefits Palo Alto per resident more than any other city in California. But when people have these privileges, they always want more. And Paul to residents want more and more. Mostly, they want to keep other people out. They want all the land to themselves and not to share. And this is, of course, where local control exists. Zoning was created to segregate. Zoning was created to segregate racially and economically. And it still has a purpose today. 
Uh, and there is no actual right here. It is simply a raw political preference given to the, the privileged. Would the residents of Palo Alto trade with those who are landless? Of course they wouldn't. They'd rather keep their privilege. So my only objection to you is to please avoid the language of rights and fairness when you, when you reject things like SB 35. You, it, if you just want to say we have and we want more, that's, that's your prerogative. Uh, but it's not, uh, it, it's not a, a matter of fairness. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Andrew Boone to be followed by Chuck DeGuerre. So immediately after uh, that, I was uh, approached by a uh, Palo Alto homeowner who uh, asked me some questions about if I uh, know who Adam Smith was and lectured me about the free enterprise system and uh, blah, blah, blah. I I would like to... uh, have discussions with Palo Alto uh, homeowners or just anybody who does have strong uh, opposing views to Prop 13. This is a show which can very easily accommodate the debates of everybody. So uh, you always reach out to me. Uh, this is the Henry George program. I am Mark Molyneux. We're on Twitter at Henry George Program. That's PGM, Henry George Program. Uh, website is seethecat.org. You can find old episodes there, and you can reach out to me and my co-host via Twitter or any other way you manage to do that. This is a presentation of KZSU Stanford. <laughs>